This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is where we discuss warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Uh, I'm Colonel Matt Hardman. I'm the uh, current commander of operations group at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to have a great discussion. I know we're going to have a great discussion because I had the opportunity to, to interview uh, everyone uh, participating in the panel today. And uh, for, for many of them, I ended up talking to them for well over an hour about our profession and, and what we do. And, and, and specifically, uh, what we do at the Joint Readiness Training Center and have done in the past at the Joint Readiness Training Center uh, to prepare our formations to fight and win uh, the first battle. And the combat training centers uh, really are the antidote to America's first battle. Um, we get to go in, in that environment, uh, complex environment, and make all the mistakes there uh, so that we don't make them in combat. And uh, we're fortunate uh, today, we've got uh, Major General uh, Bernabe, the former commander of 1st Armored Division, getting ready to take command of 3rd Corps. And he was the commander of operations group uh, from 2016 to 2017. Uh, on the line, we have Major General uh, Doyle, uh, the, the previous uh, COG at JRTC from 2017 to 2018. Currently the chief of staff at CENTCOM. That's why he's not here because he's working really, really hard right now. Um, and was previously also the CG uh, at Fort Polk. We've got Brigadier General uh, Gardner. He was the commander of operations group from 2018 to 2020 and is currently uh, the commanding general at JRTC in Fort Polk. Um, to the far left, uh, Brigadier General Curl. Uh, was a COG from 2020 to 2021 and my neighbor uh, down at Fort Polk and is currently uh, the Deputy Commanding General of Operations at 10th Mountain Division. And then also online, uh, we've got uh, Colonel Saslov. He's the uh, current uh, DCGO for the 82nd Airborne Division and was the uh, COG uh, at JRTC from 2021 until uh, July of 2022 here. So uh, a great uh, team of people uh, that have a breadth of experience and really uh, the breadth of experience over time uh, as our army has transitioned to focusing on large-scale combat operations uh, from uh, previously uh, mission readiness exercises uh, preparing for the global war on terrorism. And so the, the change over time as well as the continuities is I think an important theme and part of the discussion uh, here, you have the trends in front of you, and, and that's really driven a lot of the discussions that we've had in preparation for this. And so I'll start really uh, with the, the first question and open up for the group is, uh, how do you envision uh, the IBCT's role within the operational concept of multi-domain operations? And uh, General Bernardi, we'll start with you, sir. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> So, so Matt was actually pretty brilliant in how he put this together and uh, having us do interviews with him beforehand. It was really kind of forcing us to think about this and to prepare. 
And in my case, it forced me to go find some things from my archives and uh, you know, pull those to the forefront and, uh, and spend some time contemplating some of these topics. So I'm a bit of an anomaly in the sense that uh, you know, I was at COG at JRTC, and then since then I spent probably more time looking at SVCTs and ABCTs than I have IBCTs. But um, as a division commander preparing for a warfighter and fighting Warfighter 21-4, we did have a chance to think about how would we employ the IBCT in a large-scale combat operation on the European continent. And by the nature of that exercise, it was designed to start to touch multi-domain operations. Multi-domain operations was still very much a concept a couple years ago. We're on the verge of calling it doctrine, our operating concept, I'm sorry, our, our operating doctrine here in a couple of weeks. But even back then, two years ago, we were starting to toy with uh, how we would execute multi-domain operations. And in fact, our division was equipped with some of the types of things that we're trying to develop to enable a multi-domain fight and multi-domain dominance. So as a division commander trying to figure out how to employ ABCTs, SBCTs, and IBCTs, frankly, not a lot changed in terms of the role of the IBCT. And we heard a lot about this the other day, actually from a couple of speakers, as they talked about, hey, infantry forces are going to fight in restricted terrain. They're going to fight in urban centers. <clears throat> Now, for a division commander who's fighting a very fast-paced multi-domain fight, what is the dilemma? What is the challenge for the IBCT? Well, how do you get that key capability where you need it, when you need it? That's tough. Um, we talk about vertical envelopment. We talk about, well, maybe we're gonna drop paratroopers in on the far side of the, the wet gap. Perhaps we're going to air assault with rotary wing to the far side of the wet gap. Maybe that becomes a high risk endeavor and perhaps given the enemy's capabilities, not something we want to try. And so I think part of the message for the IBCTs and, and JRTC does well to bring this out is you've got to be able to get your combat power where you need it when the commander needs it. Um, it's part of the interview, one of the things Matt asked me, he said, so how did JRTC change during my tenure to meet the demands of the current environment? One of the things General Abrams directed, General Abrams was a force comp commander at the time. One of the things he directed, he said, hey, Sean, you need to bring the tyranny of distance to the JRTC. We, we talked about the differences between the training centers, and I had done rotations at all three of them. One of the big differences at the time when you looked at NTC versus JRTC, and by the way, I've been out to NTC as a light instrument. And what does that look like? A whole lot of walking. Um, NTC had the terrain of distance. Well, we didn't really have it as much at JRTC. It was a very small piece of terrain relatively. And so he said, I want you to figure out how to do it, how to add that in. So if you've been there lately, we bought up a bunch of land to the north and if we connected the box at JRTC with uh, Peace on Ridge Life Fire Area. And we told IBCTs, you got to get all the way up there by this time hack or you're irrelevant. That's when the division needs you there. I had some, I remember some battalion commanders looking at me as the cog saying, how am I supposed to do that? So I only have 10 trucks or I, I don't have any trucks. And I would say, hey, look at these. 
start walking. And then we get back to fitness and lightening the load and, and using things like shuttle marches. How many of you are familiar with a shuttle march technique? Well, that's a World War II technique where you take the few trucks you have and your troops, you, you know, a third of your troops walk to a certain point, a third of them get driven to a certain point, get dropped off, and you do that drill until you get to your objective. So it was things like that to remind IBCTs that one of the fundamental challenges is getting you to the fight. Now, obviously, brigades and divisions, you know, in that kind of fight, a division has to figure out how are we going to get this IBCT where we need them, want them. But, um, but, but frankly, uh, quite often, it's going to be a combination of, uh, of fitness, foot marching, shuttle marches, perhaps helicopter movement, not to the X, but to some offset uh, to then allow you to make the final move to where we need you. Here's the other thing that I think comes out of that whole discussion. I don't think as we went through the war fire, any of those IBCTs were pure when it came time to fight. So we, we task organized. And so each and every one of those ended up being a combined arms brigade combat team. And so a lesson there for IBCT staffs is you better be ready to integrate a combined arms battalion because you're going to need them as you go into that urban area. You're going to need them, um, you know, as, as we punch you through restricted terrain. And as you look at places like Eastern Europe, when I see that terrain, I see a big defile drill. Everybody familiar with a defile drill? You know, we practice that uh, a fair amount in, in uh, Korea. Um, that's a key to survival and a key to success in a place like Eastern Europe, for example. And, and that begs the, uh, the, uh, the armor infantry team. And, and uh, it goes right back to what I said. It's, it's going to be a, a, a task organized uh, combined arms team in the end. So, um, so what is the role of the IBCT in multi-domain operations? I'm not sure it changes. Um, we're going to have still have the challenge of how do we get the IBCT where we need them, when we need them. Um, but the other reality is, is out, as always, we're going to task organize for the fight. So, so be ready to employ strikers and tanks and, and, and some type of fighting vehicle and whatever else we develop um, as we, as we uh, march through time. Anyone else have any, any thoughts on that one? I think I think you you hit that that well. The, the one thing I would I would talk about is my experience as the cog. We had a brigade come through, and uh, every once in a while I'd have a, a IBCT commander complain to me that they were fighting against an enemy, either motorized or mechanized formation as part of the rotation. And uh, I think Command Sergeant Major Wilson in the crowd was with me, and uh, we'd say, well, yeah, you are supposed to hold restrictive terrain, and and you're supposed to be able to do that in that rotation. One young kid with one javelin took out three tanks himself. I mean, it is it is possible for well-placed infantry by a great company commander and platoon leader, platoon sergeant, to rain the dickens on armor formations coming through. So I'm not ready to throw out 2,000 years of history. If you read Keegan's History of Warfare, I mean, infantry has never been one of those that's gone up and down. We've always had different roles, but I think we're going to maintain a pretty critical role, if not always decisive in certain battles. Yeah, the only thing I would add is uh, it, one of the critical things for IBCTs uh, in this fight, and it's becoming even more critical, is, is uh, protection and, and protect and being able to camouflage uh, ourselves uh, from in the uh, electromagnetic, uh, being able to camouflage ourselves in the um, uh, 
from visual and and uh, a lot of it is uh, how we blend into built up areas, how we blend into um, uh, wooded areas and uh, how we disperse our, our command posts. The other thing is protecting our networks um, against a lot of the, the threats we face. It, in the past, uh, Geronimo would go through it and uh, when they got prisoners, they'd take their graphics and their, their orders and all that stuff. Now they don't even need to do that because in a lot of cases, they'll just go in uh, to your networks and uh, go through your, your files, read all your orders, read all your graphics online. Uh, so, so being able in, in multi-domain operations, uh, being able to protect our networks and our, our CPs. General Doyle, anything from uh, your end or you want to wait for a follow-on question? Yeah, the, the comments you made sit well with the leadership component of it because if an IDCT is going to be relevant, you're going to have to have you know staff that can do what General Bernabe said, which is accept task organization changes. You're going to have to have staff that can think through protection problems when the enemy confronts them with different capabilities. So an IDCT's relevance in multi-domain operations is really going to be contingent on how well we prepare the leaders to understand that role, to understand what resources are out there, what challenges are out there, and, and then to think through integration. Thank you. Uh, Carl Saslov, anything to add? <clears throat> so uh, my next question uh, for the panel is the, uh, and, and by the way, so the questions for these, we did a survey up front. We got a bunch of great questions. We synthesized these questions, or I did. Uh, into about 10 questions to drive the discussion. So we did we did listen to your survey, uh, tried to synthesize these together. So my next question, um, and it really going down a bit, is that the IBCT within the division, as the as the division becomes a unit of action, and how do you see the the BCT's fight within the division as a unit of action? Will it? Hey, Dave, you want to you take a crack at it first? I really appreciate that, sir. Yeah, the, uh, the interesting thing that DRTC has been able to do with uh, we, you know, the 21st Airborne Division or CJTF-21 uh, is incorporate the DTAC construct, so division headquarters, into the rotation. And the most successful units will employ their battle rhythm, employ their SOPs, employ their comms architecture, and then uh, compel uh, the IBCT in question to, to, you know, conform to what the division is going to do when it deploys, because the division is going to be the centerpiece. And, you know, I think some core commanders might argue that, uh, because I'll <laughs> take toys and tools and use it for uh, their purposes. But, you know, you're going to see division, my expectation, um, you know, looking at what we see in Ukraine and other places play an enormously important role. So what the IBCT has got to do is recognize they're not the only show in town. And so JRTC has been very aggressive in framing that. Uh, so the BCT commander is in fact the training audience. He is not driving things, he's uh, being driven. And I think that, that bodes well for what uh, Colonel Harden said about being able to fight successfully in America's first battles. Thanks. Yeah, so we just heard General Pappas talking about how we, we're gonna have to train, change the way we train. 
schedule. So we've talked a, a lot about how these rotations must start to incorporate division CPs. Seeing this coming, uh, we actually planned a rotation at NTC. We started the planning about six months ago. Uh, and you heard General Pappas refer to uh, Jim Eisenhower, the commander of 1st Armor Division, and the rotation they just finished, where they took the division CPs out to the National Training Center in conjunction with 2-1 AD and ensured that, number one, that we remember how to deploy all the, the nodes for the division, but also that they're practiced in the dirt in a, <coughs> in a desert environment and that they get the reps and sets they need to see to a fight. Now, we designed that rotation in such a way that it did no harm to the brigade. The brigade remains the primary training audience, but it also set up in such a way that if the brigade is ready or if they need some pressure from the division, the division headquarters was in, in the position to, to do that and to make sure they got to the training uh, results that, that they were looking for. Seems like it worked pretty well, and I think it's a good interim step for where I think things are going. Uh, a model I propose is that, you know, perhaps a division in the first year of a division commander's tenure does a warfighter uh, exercise, command post exercise, uh, you know, like the way we do it now, and maybe in the second year, then they deploy and do a dirt warfighter out of the CTC and get those reps and sets out there, you know, as, as one potential long-term approach. Um, I think the other thing um, we have to think about you know, we've heard, as we talk about the enemy, talk about the, the Russian threat, if people describe the Russians as a, you know, an artillery force with tanks, so there's no doubt uh, in terms of mass and, and in terms of range, uh, we've got a pretty tough challenge there. And so what we found in, in Warfighter 21-4 at the division level, the cannons that reside in the brigade combat teams very quickly became attractive to the division commander who told those brigade commanders, say, those cannons are not yours, they're mine. Your job, brigade commander, is to position them, to secure them, make sure you don't lose them. We only have 18. And to, to sustain them, make sure you got all the rounds we need, the right rounds in the right place at the right time to enable the division fires plan so that I can set conditions for you, brigade commander, so that I can set conditions for brigade success, so I can set conditions with fires for brigade maneuver. Now, ideally, it sure would be great if the division also had cannons. Um, in an environment where that's not the case, that was the easy answer. Let's you know, tell the brigade those are mine. You, you position them, I shoot them. Um, a better solution long-term would be cannons at the brigade, cannons at the division, rockets and, and uh, you know, maybe even extended range cannons at the division, and we fight a, a fires fight together. But um, I think that's a, that's a good model in the interim as we go forward to get divisions a chance to practice and, and to remind brigades that you may be enabling a division fires plan. You're part of a bigger operation. Uh, tied to that, attack aviation. What's a division commander's number one killing machine? It's not the M1 tank. It's not the Bradley. It's not the, the rifle battalion or squad. I mean, it's it's the AH-64 Apache. If conditions are properly set and if put in the right place, they could wreak havoc. It's a very capable system. By the way, with some of the things we're working on the modernization front, will be even more lethal. Um, so the days of 
air weapons teams over the shoulder providing support to BCT formations are, are gone, or at least they're, they're not there right now. And so we've created some bad habits, I think. Now it's a good, it's good practice for company commanders and battalion commanders to, to learn, to practice integrating other capabilities. So don't get me wrong. Um, we need to continue to think about that and practice it. But um, we've created this false expectation in our IBCTs, SBTs, and ABCTs that company commanders and battalion commanders are going to have a patch, Apache helicopter sitting over their shoulder. That is not going to be the case. The division commanders can't afford to do that. The core commanders can't afford to use that asset in that way. Um, and so I think as we design our rotations and we look at how we use the aviation task forces, we ought to we ought to uh, shape rotations in that way. First Armored Division's rotation was shaped just like that. The, the aviation task force was present. They were they were flying missions deep in support of the division. Uh, condition setting plan as opposed to in support of the brigade. Um, so again, the, just a couple of thoughts on how the rotations might change to reflect uh, the division as a new reaction. Just a quick uh, one on that. If you're a company commander sitting here, like you're not losing your crucible event at the JRTC or even at the National Training Center. You know, when the National Training Center has done it, they've typically done it separately uh, from the rotation uh, in February of 19. I think it was. So we brought Tech Mountain down. So we've done four or five division tacks. The 82nd has been doing it for a long time to uh, to be able to see to the forcible entry. And so we, we are able to do that at CTCs without impacting company commander chain objectives. It's pretty well firewall. The, the number one operating principle is do no harm to the rotation. And so the, the COGS have got very good at putting up that firewall so that you don't have a division sending the brigade off on a crazy tangent that's going to completely disrupt the, the training plan. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, for General Curl, uh, so you've been the DCGO for uh, a, now a little over a year. Uh, you've been failed by certain brigade commanders, or third brigade, third brigade sitting right here. Uh, how how did uh, how do how does personnel equipment readiness and then uh, equipment uh, on hand habits translate uh, to true training uh, proficiency. Yeah, so I think for, for all of you who are who are going to be company commanders and, and platoon leaders uh, or first sergeants, I think the critical thing is you, you really got to start with uh, P and, and, and it goes PRS and T in, in that order for a reason. If you don't have the right personnel and your personnel aren't available to work train, deploy, then you can't maintain your equipment properly because you don't have the right people to do it. You can't uh, account for your equipment properly and you can't train effectively. If you don't account for your equipment, you don't have the right equipment and you don't maintain it correctly, then, it, then you aren't going to be able to train uh, effectively. We've all sat at AARs for live fires where we do more talking about, well, if the machine if these machine guns hadn't gone down, uh, then we would have been more effective. Or if we had the right BII for, for this piece of equipment, uh, we could have used it more, more effectively. Instead of talking about the synchronization of fire and maneuver uh, at the critical critical piece in the fight. And then, then in the fight, in, in a JRTC rotation or in a combat operation, uh, thinking about prioritization of uh, moving personnel forward, moving equipment forward, 
who does the priority, who's setting the priorities uh, for what to move forward, and and then what what you're using to secure the, those assets. We talked about IBCT's role. Some of it may be securing our rear area so that we can we can move uh, equipment forward. Um, dedicating the right assets, dedicating the right lift assets, whether those are ground or, or air assets, uh, to get those critical pieces forward. So if we don't start with who we need and what we need, we aren't really going to be able to train and conduct operations effectively. General Doyle, or do you have anything to add, sir? Yeah, Andy, if uh, Colonel Sands loves up on the net, you know, he's a, a great example of a, a unit uh, that maintained high level of readiness and then was able to respond um, as an IBCT to perform a function in a combat environment. Uh, so, I, you know, from, from Andy's perspective, if you're on, you want to talk about what you witnessed and then how you saw that translate into the most effective units that go through RSOI or JRTC, I'd, I'd really be interested in that perspective if he's there. Yes, sir, I'm up. Can you hear me? Can you guys hear in the back? Go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. Um, so, you know, I think uh, to, to start with, with the COG's original question and tie into your point, sir, um, you know, it's important for us all to remember the, the, the Army has designed each of each of our organizations for a specific purpose, and it has equipped, equipped us for that purpose. Um, what we see often, I think, at, at the training centers is units arrive with the equipment that they take to the range every day. They don't equip, they don't arrive with the equipment and leaders aren't inspecting the equipment that is in that organization to achieve its purpose as directed by the Army. Um, and I think that's, that's really what the huge takeaway from RSO&I is, right? The RSO&I process, that helps us get our equipment ready, but really it helps leaders understand how they align their systems um, to have functional equipment uh, that meets the Army's purpose. Um, and, you know, I, a story I told at our, almost all, every RSO and I is, you know, we, we went through the process when I was brigade commander at JRTC. Um, you know, I think we took a lot of great things out of that. Um, but my takeaway from the RSO and I process was still that it was this thing at JRTC really to to cause some friction inside the chain of command and, and you know, um, highlight some, some gaps we had. And, and we didn't take that process with us. And so, you know, when we had to rapidly deploy, the systems that we used every day and the systems that we had, um, we found utility in maintaining them. And I, I think we maintained a good process to get them out the door. And that, that saved us hours and hours of time. You know, the first battalion had to be ready in 18 hours, and it was ready in I think 16 hours. And we waited. We waited on lift. But halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, that battalion commander called me uh, from the aircraft and said, "You know, I, I just realized that some of my attachments are missing critical equipment, and it's because we didn't take that RSO and I process, and we didn't we didn't think about equipping for purpose, as you know, as Colonel Carl talked about with the with you know, or General Carl, I'm sorry, talked about with, you know, you have this P and then, and then you equip that P. We hadn't gone through that process. And so the Army designed you for a reason. Um, and, and understanding what that is and bringing that equipment, I think, is critically important. And then, you know, use the, use the process to 
how you're going to maintain and upload your formation in, in crisis. I, uh, there might be some folks here who aren't familiar with the term RSOI, especially our lieutenant's reception staging, onward movement integration. So the process a unit goes through is it arrives in a theater to receive all of its personnel equipment, stage it, move it to the, the point for final preparation, and then integrate it into the rest of the fighting force. It's a very complex uh, process. Very, uh, you know, time is never going to, you never have enough time to do it. The enemy is probably going to be putting pressure on you as you're doing it. And, it, and as uh, highlighted by a couple of these former COGS, it, it's not just a CTC way to induce pressure, it's a reality. We send brigade combat teams to the Korean Peninsula, they conduct RSOI, a very new and uh, different environment under pressure. When we send them, we sent 1st Brigade 3ID to Europe to respond to the Ukrainian crisis. They were absolutely doing RSOI spread between a couple different ports. And, uh, and by the way, adding an additional green of drawing army preposition stocks and then moving it to, to then qualify off of it. So, um, you know, a very important process and something that we, we must sustain at the training centers as a key uh, training event. Thanks, gentlemen. So for General Gardner, um, in focusing on large scale combat operations, uh, where do you think we've made the most growth um, in in changing behaviors and habits, and then where, where do you think we remain challenged? So I think one of the areas that I've, I've seen growth, and I, I kind of dated back to about 2014 or so when I was able to start seeing it, is I think in the last, whatever that is, eight years, I think we have a much better appreciation through our professional, uh, professional military education our self-development, which is part of leader development, you know, what you guys are reading and, uh, and then what we're teaching at leader training program, et cetera, to understand the specific details by warding or fighting function that are required to succeed in decisive action. You know, that, that's important. It's important you come out of PME as a company commander, understanding when we talk about detailed planning, even at the company level, and that may be on a pre-formatted thing that you're going to brief verbally, but what are the details I got to cover as a company commander? I think we're much better off and we've grown a lot. I think we also understand the fundamentals. The We have to pull security. We have to dig in. We have to integrate with adjacent units, right? I'm talking about company command level things. We have to plan and, and issue an order. We have to do a map with good fire control measures and good graphics. I think the two areas that we need to improve in is take that next step. One is to have the discipline to do those things I just said. When you're a company commander, you know, we always used to talk about the team leader is the busiest person in the army. Because as soon as the platoon takes a halt and everybody does a flop to include the platoon leader with the radio, the team leader, the first thing he's doing is checking soldiers. Right. And by the time the team leader is ready to flop, it's ready to it's time to move again. Well, company commander is the same thing. As soon as we're there, probably got to write another order. Probably got to check with adjacent units. Probably got to look at the sector sketch. Right. So that discipline to do those things that are hard routinely. The second thing is some of you will find yourselves on staffs is we know our details, but I feel like we're coloring on different pages in the coloring book and we're trying to put it back together. 
right? You know, we got the fires guys go off over here and the, and the engineers go off over here and the maneuver folks stay here. And then we wonder why we get through the war game, we get to the plan and the target is like 200 meters from where we changed the obstacle at the last minute. And oh, by the way, the Apaches didn't get the word to get to the aerial battle position that's gonna allow them to bring fires, right? There was a beauty when us at the table, just by age, had to fight over the same piece of acetate to get our graphics, because if it didn't get on there, it wasn't true. Or if, if it didn't get on the single execution matrix or sync matrix, it wasn't true. So I, I would offer be disciplined, be ready to do the work, and figure out ways to color on the same page together across the team, whether that's your company little team you pull together, you RTO first sergeant, or on your staff, you know, pulling the right folks together to be on the same map, same graphic, same color and page in the color. I agree that, that we do a better job of, of winning at the point of contact when we make contact on our own terms uh, with the enemy that we did probably four or five years ago. But, but two things that while I was the COG, I really had regrets about, about how I trained my brigade, when I was brigade commander and battalion command, company command, et cetera. And those two things were one, pulling security, because uh, as General Gardner says, I think people understand the need to pull security, but we've got to pull security all the time. And, and we got, I, I think a lot of times we'll go out to live fire ranges and we'll do the We'll do the live fire, do the actions on the objective. And although we fought to the field and we set up patrol bases and all that, we'll go we'll do the run, do a AAR, go back to the patrol base, and no one will be pulling security. And then I think that translates into the rotation with then about a half hour after or, or two hours, three hours um, after entering the box. Um, if, if we're not doing an attack or we're not doing the, preparate, the prepared defense, no one's pulling security and, and everyone dies, which at JRTC, you know, we're shooting miles and all that stuff is forgivable. But when we're doing this for real, people will really be dead and, and it won't be forgivable. Uh, the other thing is comms. I would have spent way more time training comms uh, because I, start, I started calling that the original sin at, at JRTC because if you look at the things that would go wrong, we can't synchronize fire and maneuver. Uh, why? Ultimately, we can't talk. Um, our sustainment plan ends up falling apart. Why? Because units wouldn't turn in their log stats. They wouldn't attend the, the virtual log sync because they, they couldn't talk. So if you look at the, all the things that went wrong, why those things wouldn't happen, why those things happen, oftentimes it would ultimately come down to no one could talk to each other. Sure, so I still call it the original set uh, to stay up with it. And for the company commanders, I would say, if, shameless, like, carry comp to a one. Mm -hmm. If you can't talk to your battalion headquarters, you know, it, it's not awesome. Uh, Colonel Saslov or, uh, or uh, Mid General uh, Doyle, uh, any, any comments to add on uh, what you saw, where we made improvement, and where you think we're still struggling, sir? Yeah, what I saw, and it was really through Colonel Sadlov's eyes, was a much more aggressive perspective on um, taking risk. And it really encouraged me because, you know, at local levels, 
you know, platoon leaders were seeking the fight. Company commanders were seeking the fight. Uh, we were no longer kind of waiting for, you know, the enemy to come to us. But, you know, the challenge associated with that is if you can't talk, if you can't integrate your fire system, then you start having individual platoon fights or individual company fights. Or, you know, sometimes the battalion would be out there fighting and wouldn't be able to harness all the other assets that are available at the BCT level. But, but the initiative and the aggressiveness uh, changed from the time that I was the COG to what I watched with a lot more units uh, when Colonel Sazbaugh was the COG because I think they started doing more of the large-scale combat operations, field time, no kidding, orientation to what it's like to be an infantryman, an infantry person, you know, out, out in the mix. Now, the security issues that uh, General Curl mentioned were, were prevalent as well. Um, but again, the, the translation of understanding and practicing at home station was really starting to manifest itself in a lot more aggression, uh, which is generally a good thing when you're talking about an infantry formation. So I'll pass it over to Colonel Stanfall. Thanks, sir. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to remember because, you know, we at the CKTs, we publish trends and they don't, from the, from the initial look, they don't seem to change much. Uh, but, but, you know, certainly what I realized as a cog is they absolutely have. We as an army are never satisfied. We as an army want to be better tomorrow than we were today. And so fires is still one of our trends that we need to get better at it. But, you know, where we were when I was a battalion commander to where we were when I left as a COG, we have grown leaps and bounds. Um, you know, I'll give you an area that, you know, historically we say we're horrible at the defense of the Army. Um, I, I actually think over the course of my time as a COG, I saw some pretty good defenses built. Um, where we were challenged is the integration of those defenses into the, the, the systems that were going to help kill the enemy. And, and that gets into really, you know, what, what do we got to know better? We know our work, our individual warfighting functions. Um, you know, our, our company grade officers, they're they are getting really, really good at understanding the fight at the platoon, company, troop, battery level. Our field grade officers, they understand how to manipulate that warfighting function that they're a part of. But it's that true integration that we got to get to. You know, we still hear um, constantly, well, we, we built the ops plan, now we have to build the fires plan, and I, I passed to the force so you can build the sustainment plan, and the aviators are working on the, the aviation plan. There, there, there are no, none of those plans exist. There's just the plan. There is a plan, and it's got to be integrated on all warfighting functions so that we're synchronized in time and space. And, you know, for the, for the young lieutenants and captains in the room, what you got to think about in these areas is what are the details that are needed back to my higher headquarters that only I know, right? Um, consumption rates. We, we pass to the sustainment enterprise to do the sustainment um, support to our operations, but unless you're accurately articulating your consumption rates across the class of the supply, they can't plan to support you. Um, and so I think we're getting a lot better. I think we're understanding our individual roles really, really well, but we've got to, you know, like General Gardner said, we've really got to work on the integration of those warfighting functions at Echelon. We've got to understand there's a plan, and, and it should have all the warfighting functions represented from its inception to its execution.
Uh, gentlemen, thanks. <clears throat> All right, and for the team here, uh, so we've got time. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes. We've got some time for some questions. Uh, and so we'd like to open it up for questions. And so I was a history professor at West Point, so it means I'll stare at you awkwardly if you don't have questions, and we'll get there. Please address your question to someone on the panel. Uh, gentlemen, Captain Hodden, MCCC, this is just for the group. Uh, over the past two days, several speakers have mentioned that in upcoming LISCO conflict with your peer adversaries, that the fight will begin at home station. And so how do the JRDC and CBCs across the Army, is there a plan to, like, imitate? that fight at home stationary outlook. So one, and you'll hear me talk about like the CTCs and training them at taste of the environment, right? But I guess my point is, is you as a company commander or you as a brigade commander are not necessarily responsible other than some basic stuff typically for, you know, security of your aerial port of embarkation, for example. One of the things that we do offer is some different ways that a division can choose to deploy its brigade so that perhaps you have to pack your containers a little bit uh, differently so that you have to offload the right stuff because you don't necessarily have this experience in the room if you're a captain typically, but a lot of the majors and higher, and some of you if you're prior service, remember the days where we threw everything in the containers, we got it over to Afghanistan, Iraq, and we figured it out on that end, right? And it's, it's just not going to work that way. We're going to have to be able to package our stuff for immediate employment upon arrival. Um, so we, we can make some changes like that that the divisions have. And look, we can shoot missiles at you at Fort you know, Bragg or, or, or Fort Carson, but that's not necessarily something you can affect, I think, as a company commander. Uh, anybody here been on uh, Geronimo or been in 11th uh, Regiment? Okay. Which one were you in? I was in Geronimo, sir. Okay. So what did Geronimo do to try to get information on the incoming brigade from home station before they ever set foot on Fort Polk? Yeah, so before... The rotation even starts, you know, I'd say it starts at the battalion out order. Uh, that's where we look up all the information, task organization, who the actual leaders are, social media, what the Army Times has posted about certain units. Are they ready to take on Geronimo? It's a whole bunch of research in depth on who we're fighting and figure out their capabilities and limitations, what we can expect to see in the box. And then we utilize our own capabilities to negate that. The biggest one was always the Apaches, but mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of research before the RSL 5 process even begins. And then when we added our cyber teams in, without doing anything exquisite on unclassified networks, in a couple of cases, got the plan from the home station networks. So, that, so that's a neat, you know, that, that pressure probably still happens. And so that's a good reminder for your team to practice OPSEC. And it will have a real impact on a, on a rotation. Um, might be an opportunity for deception, too. Put a, put a deception plan up there and let Geronimo buy it, put line and sinker and see what that does. But, um, you know, that you've, you've hit on something that's on a lot of people's minds. You know, I've, I've been a senior commander of insulations twice now, and, and that's a huge focal point. You know, what do we do in a major outload, a major mobilization to protect 
those deployment nodes to make sure we can still project combat power and, uh, and do so uh, with some measure of OPSEC and without disruption. So, uh, tough challenge. Other questions? Sir, uh, Major Baker, I'm from the Michigan CD of the level. This may actually be for you, but um, as JRTC and all the CTCs collect a lot of data, what are the CTCs doing to help the dot mil PF analysis through almost like pre predictive? Like we see these trends, as I think John Joel mentioned, they don't really change much or seem to, maybe just vary. What is the, the underlying cause that's causing those trends? We all kind of instinctively know it, it might be something at home station, like a time to train or, or whatnot. Is there any actual analytical rigor that goes in that you guys at the CTCs may be able to help provide the uh, modernization for us? Hey, Matt, can I jump in on that? Go ahead, Good sir. <laughs> yeah, so this is Major General Doyle, and uh, you are exactly right. There is a repository of data that exists at all the CTCs that's just staggering. But unfortunately, it's kind of unformatted data. It's in a variety of different, um, you know, methods. And some of it's, you know, AERs are just PowerPoint deep. Uh, so one of the things that John Gardner is doing is he's bringing in ORSA, an operational research system analysis person on staff. And we're going to start, you know, hopefully, this is the plan. So Dave, if I'm wrong, you can correct me. But start doing the labeling. Start doing the identification of trends. And start giving concrete data-informed feedback uh, to leaders to make assessments on whether our POIs are correct in, you know, the maneuver captain's course, or if we need to make adjustments with the PEOs and how they're fueling and getting training done for new equipment. And, you know, a lot of what we do right now is intuitive and based on leadership and experience, but it, I, I believe that if we can call the data and show uh, the Army more accurately different ways of doing business, we'll get better results. So. You know, I think JRTC is on the, the leading edge of that. I think the other CTCs are starting to look at it as an option. And then once we standardize the data, I think it'll be even more useful. Now, that's not the only thing. I mean, we still need good leaders to exercise good judgment. Uh, but we do collect all that data. We might as well put it to good use. So, Joe Gardner, my, my own tracker, did, did I kind of wave off on that? No, sir. You, you, we're, we're doing that exact uh, thing. Hey, and to, to the... To the um, question of why these things are staying the same. And, and to um, talk, Colonel Saslav talked about how they're, they're staying the same, but they're getting better. The, the trends are the same, uh, but we're improving in each of those categories. But the, but the thing is, most people go into a CTC rotation, it's their first time at a CTC rotation in that job. And so they're making the same mistake that the, the the people before them made because it was the first time they did it in that job. So it sounds like we're being kind of negative here, but we are improving. But the thing is, all of those things are really easy to talk about in the classroom here, but then actually doing them on the ground, um, synchronizing six, four, five functions in time and space while making contact with the enemy, getting very little sleep is, is really difficult. Yeah, and just two quick things. One, I think that's that's a great value of as a captain after company command coming to a CTC to be an OCT 
is you somewhat mitigate what Joan Curl just said because you then can start to observe the things you'll need to do as a battalion field grade. And so when you do come back as an S3 or XO, you're, you'll, you will have seen that already. Like the quote yesterday, prefer to learn from others. Um, but on Dotmill PF, I'll tell you a quick story, which is also why it's awesome to be at a CTC. How many of you have used casualty cards? Anybody yet? Have you used the ones with the pictures of wounds? Okay, so let me tell you a quick story. So either under, and I don't know, either under General Bernard or General Doyle, JRTC OCTs like you actually invented those and said, hey, this is telling me nothing because we used to have these ones. There was a little black and white stick figure with an X, right? And they figured out that, no, 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 give the, give the CLS or give the medic the picture and make them figure it out. That's training, right? Well, we forgot about it because stuff happens, right? NTC started using them, implementing them. While I was at COG, we talked to NTC, we got their TTPs back. Command Sergeant Major Wilson was with me in the room and I showed him the general funk. And I said, sir, look at what we're doing here. And I told him the story. He looked at his team. It's only been not even a year and a half since that, or two, two years since that happened, maybe two and a half at most. I now have a box of training development and the casualty cards are totally new. That's the power of the CTCs in a different answer to your question to impact training across the entire army. That's the impact, frankly, that a couple of captains, in this case, they were medical and logistics, but the same thing happens with all MOSs. That's what captains and sergeants first classes are doing for our army at the CTCs, this outsized impact on how to make things better. Yeah, I was always amazed at the number of folks from all over the enterprise who would descend upon a rotation out of Futures Command, the Army G6, G8. And, you know, at first you're like, holy cow, look at all these visitors with high rank that all, you know, uh, you know, add some friction. Uh, but it didn't take long to figure out now they bring a lot of value for our Army as they come in with trained eyes, trained collectors, looking at all parts of the operation, all war fighting functions, all with an idea of taking that and rolling it into a better capability or improved capability for our in the future. So that's all going on now. There's there's no doubt there's all kinds of data there that's not uh, labeled well. And, you know, we've got different bucket names for, you know, between the CTCs with different types of data. So there's some work that we need to do there for sure. Um, but I do think uh, as an army, we are putting a lot of people at each of these rotations to glean lessons and apply them to the future. Thanks. Gentlemen, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wellington, Mountain Group 3. Uh, I have a question uh, for General Bernabe uh, regarding command posts. One of the biggest lessons learned, obviously, that we're paying attention to from from Ukraine is the vulnerability of our command posts. And I think it's a very difficult problem for BCT commanders getting ready to go through a CTC rotation who have been equipped and trained to set up a command post in a, in a certain way, and now they're being told, hey, don't do that anymore. It's a bad idea. And you're going to pay a price if you do it that way. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the way forward as we try to innovate and find solutions to the problem. Yeah, I get lots of thoughts. And I've taken some action here. After you, Andy, is a good guy to talk about. Yeah. So we finished Warfighter 21-4 as a division. And at the final AR, I tasked the division staff, said, okay, we must 
take our command posts and they must become mobile, agile, modular, therefore smaller, and therefore hopefully survivable. That's at the division level. We started a campaign of learning immediately to do the same thing, uh, to do that across the division and where possible inside the brigade combat team. We got some challenges there in terms of having uh, platforms, vehicular platforms and equipment to actually accomplish that. So at the division level, what did that look like? Well, it started by realizing that not everybody can have a seat in a mobile command post at the division level. In fact, about 46%, I think, was all we could fit in mobile platforms. And so you got to kind of change the way you fight at the division level. So some part of my if we assume everybody on the division MTO is of some use to the war fight, then they got to be able to contribute from somewhere. So now you've got a reach back capability in some form of sanctuary. Now, maybe that's still in a tent somewhere. You know, maybe if we're fighting in Lithuania, that's a tent in Wiesbaden, Germany, or maybe it's in a command post at, uh, at Fort Bliss, Texas. Um, but then the other, but we had to get really creative with the platforms we did have, expando vans and um, you know, some smaller, you know, Matt V's and um, Bergs and some other things that are out there to try to come up with a way to modularize and then, and then practice, practice, practice to make it agile. Um, what's one of the best ways to speed up the displacement drill for a CP? Practice it on the clock every time. And you can add the pressure of indirect fire and even direct fire and all that. But, you know, with an op sergeant major and a stopwatch and, and, it, and, and uh, just the idea that we're going to make this better. Okay, team, that took us you know, 10 hours to displace the main and establish it. Not good enough. We're going to do it again in five hours. Ready, set, go. What do our soldiers do? What do our non-commissioned officers do? They innovate. They find efficiencies. They realize, hey, maybe we don't need all five coffee pots. <laughs> maybe we can get by with one, or maybe we don't have one at all. Uh, they realize, holy crap, these 5K of Cat 5 cable that we got to have for a brigade talk, that's, we can't sustain this. So there's got to be a better way to connect ourselves uh, other than 5K's worth of Cat 5K we got to unroll every time we set this thing up. Um, you know, so by doing some of that in First Armor Division, they've been able to pare down and come up with a solution that's much smaller, much more mobile and agile, and they just exercise it in NTC. At the Brigade Combat Team level, we haven't helped you out much with facilities. Um, but I think it starts with rethinking how can, you, how can you still command and control a formation but be survivable. I watched one brigade do this, and if you look at the trends, if you look at the trends that I listed in 2016, that this is the, uh, the number three trend on there. And by the way, it, it continued with uh, Dave Doyle after me. And so I talked to, to brigades um, you know, before they came into the box. And one of the brigades particular said, hey, we're going to beat this trend. We're going to survive. And, and that was the only rotation in my time there where Geronimo never found the brigade top. Never found it. They used what we started to call the Smurf Village approach, where they took their main and, and created these nodes and tucked them away in the trees, well dispersed by as much as four or five hundred meters at, at some times. And Geronimo was never able to find them. The drawback was as soon as it rained, 
they stopped talking and collaborating to each other because suddenly that 500 meters became like 500 miles. And so there's some human nature that you've got to uncover. And the only way you do that is you got to, you know, again, we, we called it a, a, um, uh, a uh, experiment um, in learning at, at uh, Fort Bliss. You know, just by trying, we're just going to do this. We're going to try it. We're going to do it and do it and do it again and see what kind of innovation we come up with. Uh, if you haven't, you know, there's a lot of talk about this. You read uh, John Antal's book, Seven Seconds to Die. There's plenty of examples in there and th things that make you go, huh, we got to change the way we do business. Masking, ways to mask the signature of those CPs in all spectrum. Uh, so I don't know that I've answered your, your question other than we got a lot of work to do and it's going to take us all working in parallel. You know, I, as I was talking about with General White about what we were doing at First Armor Division, you know, he gave me some good counsel and coaching. He said, hey, don't get overly focused on form. You've got to work function. I think one of our challenges up till now is that we spend so much time working the function part and we say, we'll get to form later. And we never get there. We change out the team. The next rotation is a year away or two years away. And we never get there. So we made a decision at First Army Division a year ago. We're going to do both form and function. And, uh, and see if we can't improve the survivability of at least that CP. Um, the, the subordinate brigades in First Armor are starting to tackle it as well. But again, we haven't done a lot to help them in terms of facilities or bright ideas. I'm, I'm confident that as all brigades around the Army tackle this, we're going we're to see some things emerge. Thanks, gentlemen. I'm going to give them a moment to pause and uh, transition out. Yeah. Great to see everybody here. How you can talk about us. All right, and so I'm going to turn it over to Colonel Saslov. Uh, 82nd has been doing a lot of great stuff uh, with command posts. Uh, and so, Colonel Saslov. Hey, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, I, 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 it's going it's to sound a lot like um, what you just heard, but first of all, I think. First thing we got to do is think about what our command posts have to be. Um, they have to be close, but I don't think they need to be contiguous. Um, our command posts have to process sustainment, two ops, the future plans, and at the brigade level, right? That's at the battalion level. At the brigade level, it's got to have plans, short term, future two ops, and sustainment. So four. Four areas of the brigade, I think three areas of the battalion level that have to happen at every command post. Usually we talk TAC, talk, main command post. To talk about what functions you have to accomplish inside of those. Um, it's got it's to include all the war fighting functions. If you want to do current operations, you have to have the war fighting functions. If you want to successfully do future operations, you have to include all the war fighting functions. So what gets in our way? Um, what gets in our way of making them smaller, making them more agile, um, we talked about it, right? One of it is MTO. You know, if you, if you, if you go to a brigade talk, the largest signature is actually the vehicles. And it's because we've, we've equipped the brigade with a lot of Humvees and not a lot of LMTBs, right? So it takes, you know, it takes five vehicles to equate to, to what could move inside of one LMTB. So how do you how do you look at your, your vehicular plan and how you can adjust that to lower your signature? You know, your tent should be temporary. 
They should be something that is a stopgap when you can't get into something that has overhead cover. You know, if you can get into the basement of a building, think about all the levels of protection you have from direct and indirect fire. So tents should be temporary, but, you know, what, one of the things that we've got uh, two brigades in the field right now for culminating training, and one of the things that uh, one of the BCTs is doing that I think is, is really helping speed up their movement is, you know, that five kilometers of Cat 5 cable we talked about. Every, every you know, cord or cabling requirement they have, they have two of, right? So their tents are all pre-configured, they're pre-wired, but they've also got a tough box that's another series of cables that's labeled um, so that they can rapidly move from tentage into a hard stand and back, and they can, they can adjust. So in the areas that you have the flexibility, how can you create redundancy in your, in your systems so that you can have things pre-configured for two different types of uh, occupation requirements? You've got to, command posts, I think at the CTC, I would say, are placed in matters of convenience, right? We send out a quarry party, they drive down the road, they look at a spot that will be easy and will we'll fit everything nicely, and those places generally tend to be large open areas close to the road, and the reason Geronimo finds them is because they're in the same place as the last brigade, and the brigade before that, and the brigade before that, right? Um, you know, we were doing west-to-east rotations at JRTC for a while, and the um, we had to start closing off sections of the box because so many command posts had gone there that it started to become a hygiene issue, right? Because we're digging cat trenches and and, and the, the gray water. Um, so your command post, if you go back, you know for the lieutenants in the room that are in the basic course, think about where you're told to put a patrol base, right? It's gotta be off natural lines of drift. It's gotta be in a place that offers you natural cover and concealment. That's your apply to your command post. And, 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 and so analysis needs to go into this process, right? It needs to start with a line of sight analysis. Can the brigade talk to the battalions? And can the battalions talk back to the brigade down to their companies? And so as the brigade plans for command posts, it's planning for them, planning down to their subordinates and it's doing that through a line of sight analysis to understand where they can talk and connect and, and, and then it's looking for places that are easily covered and concealed that are all natural lines of drift. Um, it can't be a matter of convenience and then you got to rehearse it and you know units will often come to the CTCs and if they have rehearsed their command posts it's generally like during the week and who really rehearsed is like the three specialists, two sergeants, and one private that's in the, the HHC. Who needs to rehearse are the majors and the sergeants major and the captains and the lieutenants who all work inside that command post um, because they're the ones who are going to tear it up and, and, and or tear it down and set it back up. Um, and so you've got to rehearse with the whole team so you understand what's our bus to seat ratio and how can I minimize the number of vehicles needed to accomplish that? How are we going to occupy and do I have each of the work functions represented in a way that'll support 24-hour operations, but is, is as small as we can possibly go. Over. Awesome. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we are at time. Uh, I'm gonna stand by here uh, and others uh, for questions, uh, but I would be remiss. Uh, so first uh, to Major General Doyle, 
Uh, sir, thanks for putting this together and having the, the awesome idea, Carl Sizlog. Uh, thanks for, for joining. For everybody that came, I uh, greatly appreciate you coming. Um, I've got Sergeant Major Hansen here. I've got Captain uh, Drew Mueller here. Uh, happy to stand by and talk CTC, uh, JRTC with you after. Uh, what, I, what I would commend to you is uh, as a two-time offender of the CTC's uh, 19 rotations at the National Training Center, as a Tarantula 07 and Bronco 07, and then over at JRTC. The, these are a difference maker for our Army. Uh, hugely humbling to be an OCT. Um, what I found my first, my third rotation uh, was the mistakes that I made as a battalion commander with fires. I questioned whether somebody should have let me command a battalion. Um, and so the opportunity to come to a CTC and learn, uh, learn your craft, really a deepening assignment, uh, hugely rewarding what you get to do in helping units get better, hugely rewarding in what you get to do in helping to develop uh, other officers and non-commissioned officers, and hugely, I think, beneficial to what you will get out of it uh, for yourself and learn our craft and our war fighting. All right, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC Experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash linktr dot ee forward slash jrtc. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil forward slash C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts, and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.